Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. And um, we're really excited today. We've got a, a very interesting guest. We've got Kat Wallace. And Kat was a recent speaker at the ICSA, International Cultic Studies Association, conference. And uh, Kat is a fourth generation Jehovah's Witness, or was a fourth generation Jehovah's Witness, uh, raised as a witness, obviously left now. She's a member of the LGBTQ plus community too. Um, so Kat's going to talk about her, uh, well, a little bit about what she talked about at the conference, but also a little bit about yourself. So uh, welcome to What Should I Think About, Kat? Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Um, so I suppose I'll ask the first question, which is um, not a question really. So tell us a bit about yourself as much as you want to or as little as you want to really. Okay, right on. Thank you. Um, well, first, I just want to say thank you for inviting me here. This is exciting. Oh, for you're me. welcome. Um, and I've been listening to your podcast. It's really an awesome podcast. So I, oh, I appreciate you. it. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> uh, so I, as you said, I'm a fourth generation raised witness on my mom's side. My dad's side, um, he was converted himself. So I do have worldly family on that other side of the family, which has made a difference for me as far as my recovery and exit. Um, If both sides had been all the way in, that would have been harder, right? Um, So, but my... I guess the main things I, I want to touch a little bit on sort of my early life. And then I would love to share a bit more about kind of my process of leaving after I was left and my healing yeah. process and journey to the development of these tools and this system that I shared at the ICS conference, which was unpacking your belief systems. So it's, it's a huge passion of mine to help people, especially recovering from cults to unpack where they have been trapped in their belief systems. Were you someone that was like really in at the start and then you've like, um, it's like been a process or did you, you know, would you want to talk a little bit about that, that process internally before you've been able to put words to it now and have this kind of steps and that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So yeah, as you say, I was very deep in it. My dad was a elder. He was not just an elder. He was like the presiding overseer. He was the, you know, service overseer. He he did a lot of strong roles in the congregation and so did my uncle, my mom's brother. So there was like this, you're the pedestalized child of the elder who's supposed to be perfect, right? And who's supposed mm-hmm. to demonstrate at all times what it means to be a witness and a witness child. And my parents were really, really strict with all that and very adamant. So 
I experienced a lot of separation within the organization, even as a child, because nobody was a good enough witness for my parents to believe that it was okay for me to really hang out with other kids. Mm -hmm. So not only did I not hang out with worldly kids, of course, because that's out of the question, but I didn't hang out with witness kids very much either because (laughs) they weren't good enough witnesses. So spiritual enough for you. mm -hmm, Exactly. And Mm -hmm. so So it meant that I spent a lot of time reading, honestly, (laughs) and, you know, watching TV some, I could do that. My parents were okay with some, you know, obviously uh, you couldn't go into certain territory, but as long as it wasn't about magic or whatever, like I did have the opportunity. So things like Star Trek, for example, when I was eight years old, that was huge for me. Like it was this vision into what is celebrating diversity even look like? Like what is some idea that you might respect other cultures and have boundaries about that kind of thing? So that philosophy of IDIC, you know, infinite diversity and infinite combinations was just like this vision into, oh my God, it doesn't have to be like this. It's so funny. I I think you're right. So Star Trek, you're talking about, um, I I think that, in fact, I've said it in a a podcast recently that I really feel that um, it gave me an alternative worldview that although it was made up, you know, in many respects, Mm -hmm. it I think it does give you something to hang on to in a way, doesn't it? That's different. Absolutely. Yeah, so I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it was really strong for me. And I was being immersed in this very rigid, controlling and coercing system, right? The witnesses. And my, my parents were holding this vision, I was going to be a missionary, right? I was supposed to go off into the, <laughs> create, How are we going to go? you know, this is the one thing as a female that I could do, right? I could go yes. special pioneer and where the need is great, you know? And so that was yeah. the vision, but I hated it. I, I hated everything about going in service. <laughs> I didn't want people to come in. I was like, you're happier where you are. Stay out there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it was a, quite a dichotomy for me of my parents' vision for what I was supposed to be like as a submissive yet powerful spiritual woman that I was supposed to embody and my pain with the with the belief system because the idea that billions of people literally are going to be killed as a solution to the world's problems was just so painful to me for as long as I could remember. You know, that was just not okay in my body. And so the idea of spending my life converting people <laughs> was something I just, I couldn't do. I tried, I auxiliary pioneered once when I was, you know, six, 17 or something, but I hated it. I never brought a single person in, you know, <laughs> like, I am actually quite grateful to think that I actually yeah. converted no one. <laughs> I always say the same. Yeah. I was a rubbish minister. I, I didn't, <laughs> um, I was a pioneer for three and a half years and, I had lots of Bible studies, but I, I never brought anyone in either. So, yeah, I, I do feel feel that like I was quite bad at it, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then there was the abuse of the kids. Like, I was was used as an example of how you can whip your child into shape, right? When I, and my mom used to tell this story when I was two years old that I wanted to play with the Lincoln logs really bad. Right. And she was like, no, you won't clean them up. And I was like, please, please, please. So she finally let me do it. And then I didn't want to clean it up. I was two years old. I was done. (laughs) So she literally describes how she spent the entire afternoon whipping me until I picked up every single solitary piece of those Lincoln logs and that she never had to do it again. It broke me. I never ever challenged her like that again. 
And she's right. I totally did not until I was an adult and literally left when I was 30. It took me that long to break away from that, that coercive control. And so when I saw her at eight years old, when I was eight and I was watching her tell these mothers with these little two years old playing on the ground that how they had to whip their children and get them into line. And I just was, I hated it. I hated being held as that example. I hated that my behavior was being used to justify abusing this next generation of children coming up behind me. Like that was so hard for me. And so you know, it was just, there was this big separation from the philosophy of the witnesses for me with what felt true to my body. So that was my experience growing up generally, you know, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. that was what it was like. Um, I did marry an unbeliever when I was 19. So that was a transition for me. It gave me an out, so to speak, where I could be in my husband's house and under his headship. And I had a lot more room to like think and talk and read and do things that were uh, quite sketchy, according to the witnesses, um, and not get caught. Yeah, it's the f- the first time you cut. There's a lot of people that have um, said about getting married and then leaving after that, either because things are turbulent because you marry someone that you don't know. Because <laughs> a lot of the time, you know, it's quite a speedy process. Or um, yeah, they get talking to each other and they're like, "This is weird, isn't it?" You know, and people start to like talk as with your family you never did. Um, it's an interesting trend mm-hmm. yeah it's a bit of a bridge in a way isn't it um yeah. uh, so uh, uh, we would definitely want to get on to your process mm-hmm. you're, you're you're a really interesting person cat because um i think i'm probably right in saying um and i hope you understand this is in the right spirit but most people who leave um kind of have their own struggle and they they find their way out of it and they, they sort of then think, thank goodness for that, that's it. But what you've done is you've really analyzed that process and you've come up with a kind of um, a, a way of, of describing it in, in a sort of step-by-step process. So we, we really want to get into that. I suppose the only other thing I wanted to ask you before we get into that is um, you mentioned that... Um, being, being a member of the LGBTQ plus community is an important part of your identity. So at what point did did that um, also have a part to play in your, your exit from the organization? Yeah, thank you for that question, uh, Stephen. I um, always knew that, was, that actually was always part of my struggle with being part of this organization and the expectations for me as a female bodied person, what I was supposed to be like, um, is since I was like five years old, I've been having crushes on girls, right? Like I always knew I had this separation from sexual interest or, or partnership interest with men. I just did. And I felt guilty about it. I I kept trying. I kept thinking maybe I just haven't read the right man. I will. I will maybe feel differently about this at some point. Um, but additionally, I was very like I identified with the masculine side of things that I was supposed to be surrendering to. Right? I wasn't supposed to be manifesting these masculine traits. I was supposed to be expressing feminine traits and and um, submitting. I choke on that word like that's a horrible word in my body <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mm, mm. yeah so my gender presentation was not okay with me my my sexual orientation was not okay 
monogamy never made sense to me. Like I did not, I did not feel like the person that I was supposed to be on the inside. So part of this marriage to this end believer was because he accepted all that about me. He had no problem with any of that. And he wanted me to talk about it. So he gave me a lot of room. So from 19 to 30, when I left, I had this space and this relationship where I could process as far as I wanted to go. And I put a lot of stops because I was a good witness girl in my brain still in a lot of ways. So even though I was struggling with it and I didn't like it, I wasn't ready to leave my family. So I, and I had kids, right? And so I felt like I really needed to figure out if they were right or not. And um, so I argued for the witness side for 15 years with him. Well, more like 10. (laughs) Um, And it just, it finally clicked that I was ready to say, you know what? I hate this. I'm 30 years old. I still hate it. I've always hated it. I hated it when I was five. I kept waiting for this revelation to happen where I would love it. And I don't. (laughs) So, you know, I don't want to be 60 and still feeling this way. Um, If if it's true and Armageddon's coming, then let God kill me because I'd rather be dead than keep on living like this. So that was my closest, like suicidal type of a thing. It's not that I wanted to kill myself. It's more that I was like, I'd rather die if that's the consequence than continue to live life like this. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. So this, this is a, a life of um, trying to uh, toe a line, both in terms of the doctrines and in terms of your sexuality and the t- in terms of your, the way that you behave. Yeah. And um, that's a hard fight to, to keep going. Um, and around 30, you, you really make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell tell us a bit about these, um, th- this process then. Um, it's quite a, there's a lot to it. So it's called se- steps to unpacking belief. So I wanted to talk about this, this word unpacking first. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you describe it as seven steps to unpacking beliefs? Yeah, thank you. Um, so for me, it unpacking was a word that I heard a long time ago associated, and I have no idea where it was just in this process of, of learning, um, of unpacking psychological issues. So taking it like a suitcase and opening it up so you can get into its guts, moving things around, folding things, taking things out, putting new things in, like reorganizing your suitcase so that what you carry around as the bags that you carry with you of your um, belief systems are packable and unpackable. You can, it's a, it's a thing you can do something with. You don't have to choose to continue to carry around these beliefs that you've been carrying for your whole life. So when it comes to the beliefs and I have, you know, a few different ones, I, I worked out one and it of course leads to another one. Cause that's how these beliefs work, right? They're all like woven together. That's one of the yep. things, right? It's complicated. The belief system, especially in a coercive organization, is often extremely structured and extremely complex. And so outsiders, one, find it in, diff, impossible to understand because it's all woven from this internalized set of beliefs that are defined for you in, a, in an in, indoctrination process. So in order to undo that indoctrination, I like the physicality of the example of taking it apart and taking out the bits that don't work for you and putting in the bits that do. Yeah, that makes mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So um, 
when did you come to write all these down and sort of do that work? Because I'm guessing yeah, at what, you... what point did you go through it yourself and then go, all right, I'm going to introspect this now? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, so those are two different questions. Which one do you want me to answer first? <laughs> Celine's. Go for Celine's one. Sure. <laughs> so initially it was, I was scrabbling my way through the territory trying to figure stuff out, right? So I actually didn't codify the short version to Stephen's question is I didn't codify it until right before the conference. I was like six months ahead of time going, Oh, I want to do this. This will be awesome. I can write this down. I didn't ever have to do it in order like that. I've worked with other people doing it, but they weren't cult survivors. And so that's a little bit of a different dynamic to look at it. And so I was doing it through a lens of a different program, which is part of answering Celine's question. Um, So, but really codifying it like that happened in the last six months. And I'm really excited to have that process like really boiled down and written down in a way that I can more easily share it with other people. I had um, started homeschooling my children actually before I left the witnesses. So for the last five years, my daughter was nine when I left. Um, So, and she's my older. So um, I was exploring this how can I raise my kids in a way that I want my kids to be raised, right? So I had my own house. I was away from my parents a little bit. I lived right down the street from them, so not too far away, but at least I had my own household. And I was exploring with learner-led homeschooling. I don't know if that's something either of you are familiar with. It's also called unschooling. It's this idea that children are born autonomous beings. They need a lot of help and support, obviously, to grow. They don't they aren't independent immediately, but they are their own self. And that that authentic self has value and that your work as a parent is to support that self and nurture it into being the person that this child was going to be. And so I love that. It it so spoke to me. Um, And of course, it's very sketchy to the witnesses. So I just was pretty quiet about it. (laughs) I didn't talk about it much, but I was online. I had this support group online that was of a similar philosophy. And one of the things that was super important to that group was communication and the ways to use some communication tools to value diversity. So I statements, speaking from your own perspective, um, talking about your own experiences and not judging other people's experiences. It kind of mirrored that IDIC I was talking about with Star Trek, you know, that idea of multiplicity and the value of it. And so I had this like big opportunity for like four years before I left to see other people practicing honoring others and communicating with that respectfulness and that valuing of other perspectives without judging or shaming. And if somebody did start doing that within the group, they very gently would remind them of the boundaries of the group and help them either restate what they were talking about or putting a boundary and saying, okay, somebody might have to leave. If you're really not going to honor the values here, then you need to go be somewhere else. Um, so I really liked that. It gave me, like we said about Star Trek, a window into what would this actually look like with humans practicing these kind of communication boundaries and skills. Um, so when I left, it gave me this foundation, this grounding in the practical of doing it with the practice with my kids and with this group. And since the witnesses are so full of judgment statements and shame statements and coercive ways of communicating, um, it was a huge deal to really 
unlearn all that. And because mm. even though right after I got out, I read Crisis of Conscience, my ex, well, my husband at the time gave me that book and he vetted it and he told me and he encouraged me to really read it. It was scary and hard. Mm. You know, as you know, Stephen, it was very <laughs> forbidden. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So, but it yeah. broke it for me. I Once I read that, boom, I was done. They lied to us was my perspective. <laughs> So, um, so it's just worth mentioning to our um, listeners that are not ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, the Crisis of Conscience was a, a book that was written by an ex-member of the governing body. Um, which Franz was it? Was it Fred Franz? Uh, Ray um, Franz. Ray Franz. Ray Fred Franz, Franz was right. the uh, president of the governing body. That's right. He was his nephew, I think, wasn't he? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ray. So, um, yeah, he left the organization and and became, I'm doing the inverted commas thing, an apostate. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember that happening and it was a big deal. It was mm-hmm. everybody kind of talked about it. Um, but, yes, of course, we didn't read the book, but um, that's one of the first stops, isn't it, for an ex-Jehovah's Witness is to read that book often. Um, right. and it, it is very, very interesting because you get a real – look behind the real look behind the curtain he was a member mm-hmm. of the governing body mm-hmm. sitting there making policy with the rest of them so it's fascinating reading um i think there's a pdf version online that you can read for free so um yeah. it's definitely worth reading that if you're interested in in that history yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely and the one thing i would say about that was the malawi i don't know if you remember the malawi chapter but when yeah. I was a little kid, Malawi was one of those things that was super triggering for me because these yeah. people in this country were being required as Jehovah's Witnesses to set, take a stand that meant they were being killed and tortured and yeah. everything they had taken and all this stuff. And Ray describes he was there at the governing body meeting where they got a letter begging them from the Malawi brothers, please, why do we have to do this? This is costing yeah. us so much. It was ridiculous because it was a single per, it was a single party state. It was a dictatorship, and mm-hmm. they had decided that everybody had to be a member of the political party. Well, there was only one party, so mm-hmm. it meant nothing, you know. But it, the, the witnesses were told they weren't allowed to have this party card to say they were a member of the one political party that there was in this country. And because of that, because it was against their Christian neutrality, and because of that, as you said, Kat, um, they were persecuted, they were beaten, they were killed, um, women were raped. It was absolutely appalling. Um, but at the same time, there was there was other countries that were mm-hmm. allowed to do things that were actually, you know, just as bad, really, bad in, again, in mm-hmm. inverted commas, but... Well, like the Mexican witnesses were allowed to sort of bribe officials to say that they'd um, done their military service. And that was so they were able to get away with that. It just seemed to him it was ridiculous, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And to me, it broke it because that was to me inconscionable that these men who were supposedly praying to God to be able to. Um, make their decisions and reading and studying the Bible and making these decisions with great thoughtfulness and seriousness were, were giving a pass to this country where people, yeah. you know, are bribing officials to have a military card, say they served in the military and in this country required to die over not carrying the political card. I was just like, and, and that they didn't discuss it even. They just, at that board meeting, he said, they just said, Nope, we're not going to do it. Keep it the same. Keep on moving, you know, two minutes. 
So for me, I was like, there's absolutely no way I am putting my life and my children's lives in the hands of people who are handling it like that. That's it. So speaking of belief systems, and this was something I noticed in my example I had given at the, at the conference is that one was actually very simple for me by the time I got to it. Because when I heard that, it took this traumatizing incident from my entire childhood and showed me what they were doing actually behind the curtain, like you say. And I just said, no, they're not who they say they are. This is hypocrisy. I, I will not be tortured over their hypocrisy. So you can, when the right information clicks, sometimes change a belief very, very quickly, seemingly in the moment, right? Very quickly, because you've sort of done this preparation work, you've been angsting over it all this time, and now you hear some definitive like logic outside of the group's paradigm, and it clicks for you. So really honoring that, like that has never changed for me. It's been 22 years. I have never wavered on that. It's like, nope, they're hypocrites, they're lying, and they're abusing us. I'm done. But other things were much more complicated. My relationship with my family, what the consequences are for leaving, all of that is super complicated for me mm-hmm. yeah and i think another example of that um to clear show, shows a pattern in what you're saying is a lot of people come on and talk about the australian commission mm-hmm. as being that kind of same moment for them that mm-hmm. you've had there with that situation so yeah they've been i guess already discontented and thinking about things and mm-hmm. and then in that sort of trigger point that's gone no this is ridiculous they don't care about mm-hmm. us and people you know like or like their priorities are completely warped um mm-hmm. i can't be in a place that stands for this and whatever yeah. this is at that moment you know australian right. commission what was happening in different countries with different political situations um right. it, it, there are trigger points with this yeah and i think it's that it's that seeing um so i think with the same with the royal commission it was watching um jackson um basically say uh, well you know it would be presumptuous for us to to say that we are the only um avenue through which god speaks you know and it's like you can imagine if you're a jehovah's witness listening to that you're thinking well um yeah that's what you're supposed to be isn't it you know and i think that the same sort of look behind the curtain was with with the crisis of conscience it was like you i always imagined that the governing body was sat around very prayerfully and um discussed things in this really awesome way you know and these huge great brains were um, channeling god's wisdom you know and, and actually this the picture he gave us was a mm. bunch of sort of aging men who were slightly mm-hmm. confused about what was happening and and didn't really um have the integrity to actually think about these things properly and and uh, mm. that was just a, it was just uh, that dissonance was just just too great wasn't it mm-hmm. yeah, well that and that's cool. an interesting point that you bring up Stephen, too because they were born in by this point we are dealing with people in authority of this organization who were also raised mm. in this organization yeah. so their ability to think critically is very compromised they never have True. thought critically probably you know so yeah. because they weren't supposed to You know, so for me, this process is really not necessarily for people who are in it still and deep in it and trying to like, maybe, I I suppose it could be helpful, but really it's for people who have 
left, whether physically or not, they've left in their mind to some degree and they know they want to redo it. They know they want to take these beliefs and undo them because it's a very um, deliberate process that you need to do because you know already that you want to do it. Um, So I, I do think that the very first belief that needs to be unpacked is, do I believe that this organization, whichever one it is, has the truth? Right. Because if I still believe that, I'm really still enmeshed. Right. I have. Let's get into these. Mm -hmm. Let's get into these, Kat. Let's get into these Mm -hmm. seven. So um, Mm -hmm. I'll just quickly read them and then we can look at them one by one. So Mm -hmm. um, you've said your seven steps were to, first of all, find your beliefs, Mm -hmm. then to write them down, Mm -hmm. and then pick one so you can take them apart one at a time. Mm -hmm. And then you talk about number four, noticing emotions. And number mm-hmm. five, once you've noticed these emotions, then process them. Mm-hmm. And then six, look at each reason. I'll, I'll get you to explain that. And number seven, repeat as often as necessary. So mm-hmm. I think we should we should say that this isn't, um, you know, we're, we're not um, prescribing a, a kind of any mental health um, advice here. But the, mm-hmm. these, this is your process that you went mm-hmm. through that you found really helpful mm-hmm. and that you've been able to put to codify in this way mm-hmm. um so tell us what find your beliefs means um mm-hmm. yeah definitely so a lot of times beliefs can be like the air we breathe you know it, they can be very yeah. invisible and especially if we grew up within a system that had a lot of controlling coercive interlocking beliefs it can be really hard to pin them down and go this is exactly what i believe about this or that and especially when you're in mid process of trying to do that like transit zone like robert uh what's his name Crompton talks about yeah I love that visual the transit zone of getting from belief in the organization to an outside life in the world where you live as you choose you know with beliefs that work for you so while in that transit zone of of changing um catching them so the two things that I really notice are strong help to catch your beliefs and you may catch them other ways I I I'm not saying this is the only ways but is to um, notice your triggers. So when I get triggered, for example, I stop and go, okay, wait, I'm feeling extra tense, extra emotional, extra reactive, extra something. I'm starting to have spinning thoughts. I'm starting to have old stories come up in my head. Any of those kind of things I would define as a trigger. And when I notice that those things are happening, I have a practice myself now, and I support other people to try it out, is to stop and say, hey, okay, I may need to do something to take care of myself psychologically, right? That trigger may be very intense and my emotions may need first nurturance. Um, or I may need may want to start capturing these thoughts that are spinning in my head. And so I'll just start jotting down as fast as I can. This is, we get to step two, write down all the things that just came up for me in this trigger. And oftentimes I may find five beliefs in one trigger. You know, it's not right. necessarily neat and orderly <laughs> so finding your beliefs to be a process give us an example of something that that happened to you if you don't mind if that's yeah, all right absolutely. without it being too triggering <laughs> yeah no absolutely so actually there was something that came up for me with regard to doing this podcast <laughs> okay. when I thought about doing the podcast and putting my work out there and standing behind it and saying something about it I noticed I had this trigger of don't put yourself out there it's dangerous mm-hmm. and shameful Those are the two things that came up for me instantaneously. And I was like, oh, well, okay, let's write that down because that's a belief, (laughs) 
right? That's something I'm telling myself right now is don't put yourself out there and be afraid and be ashamed. And so I wrote it down and then I started doing the rest of the process. So maybe we can use this example to kind of talk through some of the steps if that works. Cool. Yep. Yeah, let's do that. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support it, you can do so in a few different ways. Firstly, leaving a rating or a review really helps get the podcast noticed. So please, if you can, give a review on whatever type of application you're listening to. You can also become a patron for just £1 or $1.50 a month. And there's only one tier. And finally, please tell people about the show. We know that word of mouth is a really important way of people finding out about what should I think about. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the discussion. Okay, so um, so find your beliefs is, is the first one there. So um, one other, Can I say one other thing about finding your beliefs? Yeah, um, please. Yeah. So your assumptions are another place where you're going to be able to see your beliefs if you're willing to look at them. Assumptions, of course, can be very difficult to catch, right? If I'm assuming something, it's it's sort of an unconscious thing that's rising up for me and I'm not necessarily primed to notice it. So I like to use um, feedback like mirrors from other people and because other people can really help me notice where I'm assuming things because they don't have the same set of assumptions, Right. So they're like, wait, why are you assuming that this is the case? And I can say, wow, somebody just called me on that. I can write that down. I can take it apart because I did just assume something. Maybe what I assumed is true, but until I slow down and really look at it, I don't know. So you've also, for you, writing them down was quite important. That's number two on your uh, on your steps. So why why write them down for you? Why was that important to you? Yeah. So for me, um, and I write them down both sort of methodically with a with a typewritten list, and I also write them down more on like a notebook where I have scrawled a bunch of <laughs> arrows and <laughs> things like that. So for me, it's a matter of getting it onto something that's concrete outside of my body. So it's not just spinning in my head. It is somewhere I can look at it and give it due consideration because otherwise my thoughts tend to move fast, especially in a difficult, you know, belief, they tend to be a flood. And so if I slow down and put them on paper, that makes it easier for me to look at what they actually are and look at their logic. Mm-hmm. Almost like dreams. Like if you don't write them down, you kind of forget them. They, they, mm-hmm. they slip through you a little. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's mm-hmm. a good, uh, good analogy, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I always find writing things down quite useful. Um, it helps you to kind of formulate it into a structure, doesn't it? Yes. Obviously, in our heads, we have a an inner voice. Well, I think most of us do. Celine mm-hmm. um, claims she doesn't, which um, I just don't. Think we've about, explored before. <laughs> I don't. I don't chat in my own head very much. It's it's, it's yeah. a visual place, not an auditory place. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's interesting, I, Celine, that you say that because the other piece that I used a lot was art. 
right? So I did a lot of drawings. Now for me, this was like processing emotions. So I have this image that I have made a big painting of later of a pregnant woman with one wing cut off who has a big hook implanted in her pregnant belly that's attached to an anchor. Mm -hmm. So it's like she is trapped, especially by her children in this Mm -hmm. organization, right? Because Mm -hmm. if my, let's say my children had converted or if my children had left and I had stayed, like that's a severing. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's Mm -hmm. a violence to my body of the association of the shunning policy, Mm -hmm. for example, and how it keeps people trapped by their family connections. Mm-hmm. So I process that with really pictures, right? So it doesn't yeah. have to be mm-hmm. words. It can absolutely be other modalities of mm-hmm. examining. Capture it in some ways so you can come back to it. Because also if it is yeah. triggering, you can always just write it down so you can come back to it in a point where you're not in that heightened emotional state, but you can look at it later mm-hmm. uh, potentially then. You know, it feels to me like if you if you write it down, it, it, you you somehow have power over it because you've mm-hmm. you've formed it you know you've written it down it's your it, 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 you now have control over it rather than just being flights of fancy in your mind mm-hmm. we're getting them down we're writing them down we're using drawings or paintings or pictures or art or any other way mm-hmm. to to do it that really helped for you um mm-hmm. number 3 you've then said to pick one so you can take them apart one at a time. So that sounds like a really sensible process. So tell us why that's so important. Well, because in a cult, especially you have, like I say, all these braided together belief systems that support each other. It's a closed system, a circular logic. And so to, to deal with that circular logic, especially for born in, like I've heard you all talk repeatedly about the, the impact of having been raised with this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I've noticed about that is, um, I have multiple things that come up in my mind as soon as one belief is touched. And so a simple example of that is this one we I was sharing earlier about don't put yourself out there. It's dangerous and shameful. Well, so if I look at the two pieces of that, so examining things one at a time, I can look at dangerous and I can say, okay, what feels dangerous about that? And then I can write down all the things that feel dangerous or tell myself or tell another person, what are the things that feel dangerous? Um, I feel dangerous that I might not be ready, right? That my, uh, am I not ready has again, another thing that comes up, which is, well, I'm in danger of creating a cult because I've been trained to do that. That's, uh, that's a very possibility for me as a, as a leader type person who was inculcated with cultish patterns of behavior, if I step into a different leadership without unpacking those habits, then I'm very likely to create something else cultic. Um, So I really worry about, I'm afraid about that. And so because of that, you're not ready. It's dangerous. You need to keep on working on yourself and get yourself to a more safe place. Um, but another thing is maybe the work's not ready. The work at I, perfectionism, right? It's supposed to be perfect or as perfect as it can be. Well, so that comes up as a fear. And then, um, if you draw attention to yourself, you have a target on your back. The organization might target you. Your family might target you. You know, um, the outside world does not treat people kindly often either. So you draw attention to yourself by putting yourself out there. That means you may receive 
negative or harsh consequences that are difficult to deal with. So when I think about putting myself out there, I notice there's authentic dangers. There's things I feel are true for me that they are dangerous. And I need to think about, and this is actually getting ahead of ourselves a little bit with the look at the logic. Um, and with any of the steps, like I believe work on them as the stuff is up for you and as it's working. So if I'm more triggered on the emotional side, then I'm going to go into the emotional process about what was up. So that would be, you know, the shameful thing. Yeah. So um, just going back to this, um, this one at a time, I think that is such, such good advice. Um, mm -hmm. Because, yeah, you're right that everything is um, interlinked, isn't it? So uh, what was the example that you, you talked about? Um, uh, well, you've got, you've got some examples in, in this, um, this sheet that you, that you put mm -hmm. together. So the, the whole world is lying in the power of the wicked one was one of these beliefs. And I right. suppose if you, if you have that belief that's inculcated, then that actually, so this idea that actually the world is being controlled and ruled by Satan, right. then that, that has massive implications for absolutely everything, doesn't it? That's right. Entertainment, um, uh, so TV, movies, music, um, right. all of that, um, business, commerce, uh, relationships, anything That's that comes from the world is, is tainted by that very simple belief, but it, it, it's tentacles spread into all of it, doesn't it? That's right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. Which is where we get to the take it apart one at a time. And when you yeah. notice a connected one, write that down on a different page, write that, write that down, but in a little bit of a separated way so that you can yeah. look at them because that's what they don't want us to do. They don't really want mm -hmm. us to sit there as the cult. They don't want us to take it apart and be logical no. about it. They want us to take it as this whole, including the um, trained emotions you're supposed to feel. You're supposed to feel afraid yeah. when, you know, it's Satan's old system of things starts, you yeah. know, the, the end is coming, you know, there's war. That means Armageddon's around the corner, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be afraid. I remember that picture in, yeah, well, there was a picture in one of the books, an old, one of the older books that was not in color, but there was this picture of, I think he was supposed to be a witness there at work. And there was this sort of wild beast in, in shadow that was sort of just behind him and he was reading his bible i think he was um to help fight against this this world wicked worldliness that he was asking right. to live in yeah and i, I always remember that yeah and that's Great really dragon probably <laughs> the yeah, seven edged like beast that. oh yeah there's plenty there wasn't there it yeah. was probably in that book on daniel <laughs> the <Nice>. yellow one. <laughs> oh, the daniel book yeah i do remember the daniel book and the Oh, anyway, we could we could get, yeah, get yeah, yeah. sidetracked on that. Yeah. Right, okay. Um, Celine, is there anything you want to come in on here? We're up to number three, uh, mm -hmm. number four next, but is there anything else that you want to ask on that one? Well, I think the main thing, like you said, yeah, it's really good. Like you said, important to do it one at a time because yeah. it's, it's one at a time because, you know, other things are going to spring off of it. So if you try and do multiple, then it's just going to get too heavy, yeah. isn't it? Um, yeah. But yeah, Confusing. Like, it's, yeah. It, what it does to me yeah. is confuses mm -hmm. the issue. Right. If you're really trying to understand each of them, then they each need to be understood like separately as their own points. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then number four is all around these emotions. So notice your emotions, um, which I think is interesting. So you you've led. So this is the way I would do it. I, I, I lead with the logic and reasoning, the, the sort of belief side of things. 
Mm-hmm. And but now you're not forgetting the emotions and notice how you feel about this stuff. Um, right. And you've listed some of those emotions that you might experience. I think you've touched on this already, but tell us a bit more about that if you don't mind, Kat. Yeah, absolutely. So um, with my work, uh, one of the things I like to do is kind of simplify, boil down emotions to sort of a color palette. And I got this from the Alive program, which I'll talk about a little bit at the end. But um, we look at emotions as hurts and happies, right? At its most simple, emotions, our emotional body as an as a, as a embodied person is something hurts me or something happies me. And those can have a range that comes of being sad, being hurt, being sad, being afraid, and being angry, right? That's one side, the hurt side. And then there's being passionate, being excited, being um, happy, and being um, content, where I have these experiences of those emotions. Um, But I also have things I've been taught to tell myself are true or, or put around my emotions, like shame. Shame is, uh, in my definition that I use, shame is um, being told I'm bad because of who I am, because of my essence. There's, that's shameful. The sin of Adam is a shame, right? It's your, your inherent imperfection that's shameful. Um, if you go against God, you should feel ashamed. It's like the set of assumptions woven around behaviors and then... Um, used to influence you. So that's a that's a, how a cult uses emotions. How mm. I like to look at the my emotions is I notice what comes up and notice is this part of what I was trained to to experience, right? So when I have shame yeah. come up associated with don't put yourself out there, I notice what is that about? So if I sit there and I be with my emotion, I go, "Wow. My mother is ashamed." of this. My mother is a born in witness. My mother is still there. My mother is shunning me. I do work and I put myself out there. This is going to have repercussions for my mother. So I'm sad is what I notice when I go into that shame and I be with it and I feel it and I let it rise up in me and tell me, okay, well, what is this about? It tells me I'm sad that my mother is going to be punished by the organization for the things that I do publicly it's a fact. That's part of what happens because she's in there. Um, I'm sad. My mother is in there. I wish she would come out, you know, like for her own sake, my mother is a very powerful woman and she is in a repressive sexist organization that doesn't let her be who she is. So I'm sad about that. So there's all these emotions that I notice and, and then processing those emotions. I, I do, they're kind of one. They aren't one thing. I made them two steps for a reason because noticing emotions and doing something mm. about it is two different things. So um, this is four moving into five. But yes, I I, I see what you mean. It's like yeah. a single well, thing. Yeah, but you've got to mm-hmm. do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like with the with the processing, I just, I want to say that in therapy, in, in support groups, in um, lots of places where people give you support to notice and process your emotions. Like that's a, uh, there's a lot of information in the world about how to do that. So I'll just short quickly say that some of the things that have worked for me are, um, art painting, doing, putting something on paper, um, or on a canvas, um, venting, like just being very angry and screaming and hitting pillows or hitting a punching bag or doing something 
visceral um, and physical um, working in the yard, going outside and like digging up so, weeds or. Yeah. yeah. So Kat, you're telling me that I'm not, I'm not supposed to push them down and suppress them <laughs> more and more. Cause that's what us English people do. Of that's, course. That is exactly that what I'm telling you. So you're talking about another cultural set of assumptions, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. But give yourself room to have your emotions yeah. and let yourself express yeah. those emotions. Put on music that's, that really triggers emotions. Watch something oh, yeah. on, on a movie or a TV show or a documentary or YouTube or something that helps that emotion come up and be expressed. Cry it out, right? Vent it out. Um, be with it, whatever it is, and give it space to move through you. Because until it moves through you, it's still stuck in there. And if it's stuck in there, it's yeah. still triggering. Mm -hmm. That's been my experience. Makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. Um, okay, so process the emotions. Um, Celine, mm -hmm. did, do you have a thought? So, so that's the six, isn't it? That's number five. Oh, so we've got five. number six now. Order which is look at each reason. So I didn't really understand that one. So can you um, explain that to me, Kat, please? Yeah, absolutely. So um, like I said, the well, I, I didn't say it here. I said it at the conference. Um, the logic, the, the thought process has been manipulated by the cult and your emotional process has been manipulated by the cult. So if you are working to unlock that, it takes working on both sides of that. Right. So I have to deal with what they trained me to think about these things. Right. And I also have to deal with what they trained me to feel about these things. And I also have to deal with what I authentically believe or, or find to be true and what I authentically feel about whatever the situation is before I can in, internalize a different set of beliefs. Right. So nice. it unlocks this this sort of puzzle box inside my consciousness <laughs> of my logic and my emotions and gives me access to um, reality. Check it is something that some of the cultic books reference is look at it with with my reasons and my my feelings. So in this example I was using, um, I looked at, I, I could write down each of those beliefs that's attached to it's dangerous. I can also look at the beliefs that are attached to it's shameful, right? My mother is going to be shamed. My mother is likely to feel that shame. I have emotions about that. I feel sad. Um, I'm also angry, by the way, because I'm not angry so much with my mother. I'm angry with the organization. They are manipulating yep. people and harming them in my body. So noticing those things are true gives me room to also notice that, well, all that's true. My authentic self is really happy with the life I've created as an independent, powerful, female-bodied person. I love it. I am, I have the life I want. So I have a lot of contentment with where I've gotten to in the last 22 years. So when I look at my sadness about my mother, I can acknowledge that and let it be true and keep on moving. Right. So I can let it let it not block me from feeling the happiness, which it used to block me. I had to work through that sadness. Now I've done that enough. It doesn't block me from accessing my happiness with the life that I have. Um, so then I can look at my thoughts. Right. Well, you're not ready. You might become a cult leader. Well, that's always going to be a danger. And I have worked a lot and I feel 
I am ready or I wouldn't have agreed to do this. (laughs) I drawing attention to myself, it puts a target on my back. Well, okay, that's true. Drawing attention to myself may well put a target on my back. And this is something I decided to do a long time ago, regardless of that danger. So be careful, keep on moving, right? The work itself might not be perfect. Well, it's never going to be perfect. You you have essentially decided you're ready, so keep on moving. So it, essentially what I'm doing is addressing each of the things that comes up in the trigger. And then once I've done all that and I do feel relatively peaceful with all of it, I don't, you notice have to feel 100% peaceful. I'm still sad. I am still angry. Those things didn't stop. They're still true. And I don't have to let them stop me. And I don't have to let them block me from accessing other things that are true, like I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? <laughs> it, it does. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's really useful. Um, and then number seven, you've you've got repeat as often <laughs> as necessary. So uh, that good. kind of yeah. speaks for itself, but it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, so like putting yourself down, you can go out there has been something I have worked through about a thousand times. I don't know, a lot of times. Uh, because it keeps coming up. And now it comes up very briefly. I wrote this down in half an hour this morning. It, you know, it was a thing, but it's not an intense thing anymore. It's mm-hmm. not stopping me the way it used to. Mm-hmm. Well, and part yeah, of why it stopped me was because some of these things were still true. I don't feel ready yet. I don't feel my work's ready yet. Right. So I waited. I didn't do it yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Celine, yeah. you had a thought. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I think it's really important to um always say that the work like continues and that it's not just done one day and you go that's it now everything that happened in the past is done and never affects me because it's just rare rare that that's true that that you know you stop being affected by things and that's not a sign of weakness or Mm -hmm. um like has to be an aspirational goal like you like you said the main thing of learning to have both things be true i guess you know like in when you're in like court situations where like it's very dogmatic and one thing has to be true and that's all you can cope with Mm -hmm. whereas in this situation it's like well both things can be true i can be sad about things but i can be happy about things and Mm -hmm. um yeah just being aware of that and like having that kind of i feel like as a final step encapsulates that whole thing you Mm know and and what it also does cat is um so it it kind of reminds me of a um so I, i work in industry quite a lot in um so my day job um, mm-hmm. When I'm not doing the things I really enjoy doing, like this, I work in in businesses to help them improve their processes and things like that. And mm-hmm. I, I developed a, a six step process. And then I got to the end, and I realised that actually what I what I could do was take the end one and and just pull it round to to the top of the beginning. And what you end up then with is a continuous improvement cycle. And it mm-hmm. feels like that's actually what you've got there. You could. Mm-hmm. You could draw that as a circle so you've got this repeat now. So you're basically going through this process and with every iteration of it. So mm-hmm. I, you know, far be it for me to uh, tell you how to use your own model, but it just mm-hmm. um, it just yeah, seems to be, well, that's, that's, that is a continuous improvement process, essentially. That's part of what, what you're doing there, um, mm-hmm. which is great. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you can make like stars in the center of your circle, right? Because you can jump from this step over here to this step over here yeah. if that's where you need to. And in fact, I encourage people to do that. Like do what's strong for you right now as yeah. 
working with this because if your emotions are flooding you right now, then that's the piece that needs to be dealt with. If your logical thought, if your thoughts are spinning, then that's a piece to be dealt with. You know, if you stop your spinning thoughts and all of a sudden, you know, for a second and all of a sudden your emotions flood you, well, then it's time to switch over and do, you know, so it's not dogmatic, yeah. do it in this order. It's, it's not like, like a linear these approach. These are the things, can... do them yeah. as you, as you need them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's really yeah. interesting. Awesome. Thank you for sharing it with us. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. Well, thank you very much for listening and for giving me the opportunity to, to share it. I really appreciate that. I, like I said, there's lots of ways to approach healing. I think there's lots of different ways to approach unpacking your beliefs. This is what worked for me. And I feel like it could work for some other people too. Uh, I I think so. Um, I I really like it. I mean, it's, it's very, um, so you, 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 you talk about your art and, um, and and how you express yourself and, and so on. And that's obviously really important to you, but what for me, that's a very analytical process that you've you've used there which i think is really interesting um i definitely it definitely talks to me so yeah that's that's really good i'm very logical i could have easily perry mason was one of my favorites right i love perry mason (laughs) and it was all about the logic of the law and the and the understanding of human nature to me i read all the books you know when i was a teenager (laughs) so i'm very cerebral I think you are. Yeah, you've you've definitely got that um, that mm-hmm. way of approaching things. Um, so I know you've got other things that you're interested in um, that you wanted to tell us a little bit about. Um, we've got a bit of time if you've got the time. Do you want to tell us about some of the other things that you're involved in, uh, Kat? Yeah, I would love to. Thank you so much. Um, there's two things particularly that I wanted to share with people um, that I have used as either part of my process or that and that I'm doing now as a workshop and work groups and, and teaching processes. So one of them is I am the co-president of Navigating Consent, which is um, The Ethical Slut Presents. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Dossie Easton, but she wrote a book called The Ethical Slut, which is all about how to change your beliefs around what's okay about sex and how to help yourself live the sexual life you want to live consensually and ethically. Um, which was very important to me. So we developed together and with a team developed this program and we have been holding it for, um, well, since 2018, we've been having classes twice a year and we're starting a new round coming in September and it's, um, a six week process for either survivors or transgressors of consent concerns. So it we teach communication and school skills and we also teach things and and do exercises and things to help people nurture themselves and recover and do the communicating after something has happened there's been a violation. Um, so I really love that work. I feel like it's very important to have in the world a way to like we say navigate consent in sexuality. Um, so it ties together with sort of this Um, unpacking beliefs that I do in that we're really looking at our beliefs around sex and um, noticing our judgments, noticing our assumptions, and then negotiating with other people to get our needs met. Um, So I feel like it, it is an outgrowth for me of my learning how to do that. And also it's sort of a bridging organ um, group to help people begin to learn those things, or if they have a lot of skill to come in and work at the level they're at, it's very flexible. So that's one thing I wanted to share. Okay, interesting. Um, yep. 
Yeah. And I have my website uh, for that is uh, navigating con- navigating hyphen consent dot com. Um, we'll, we'll put a link on the um, the show notes for people cool. if they want to go to that. Yeah. The other thing I really, well, I've been working on writing my book, so that's at sunrisecreations.org. You can put that in there too. Um, and that's got a pieces of my writing and my history and my story and, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. The other thing is, um, the alive program. The alive programs were created as a domestic violence, um, violence to intimacy, work group that Hamish Sinclair created. Uh, he's a Scotsman from who's in his nineties now, and he has been doing this since the eighties, 1980s. And he, um, has developed this program that I've been working with since 2011. And I worked with him directly in the middle there for about two years, uh, really learning how his philosophy works, like the underpinnings of his system. Um, and, translating that, he's been supporting me to translate that into cult recovery. Um, because I really believe that this program, similar to my 12 step pro- or not 12, seven step process has, um, is some real value for people who've been brainwashed and mind controlled to be able to undo that and to really notice. So the short version I would share is, um, in the cult of life framework, I would put it as you have that superior cult leader voice that tells you what you're supposed to believe, right? I'm sure you have one in your head, Stephen, that tells you, you know, this is what's expected. Um, And that voice can be extremely coercive. It can be violent. It can be really intense. You know, you're going to die and stay dead. You know, I'm going to stone you if you sin by disobedience or sex. You know, my father threatening me as a little child that this is what he would do. You know, that whenever I hear that in my mind, I have a trigger, something comes up, what the fuck? This voice is telling me this is how I should behave. I should feel ashamed as a woman who is trying to put myself forward into a leadership position. Right. That's that cult man, um, cult leader voice. Um, mine sounds like a preacher because <laughs> my father was quite a preacher. That's interesting. Freud, uh, Freud called that the superego. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's probably his version of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. There's a lot of ways to think about it. I, uh, mm. Utilizing this has been helpful for me because it's relatively simplified. There's four parts. Um, there's the leader voice. There's the powerless cult victim voice. The one who is cowered down and beaten down and has no power. Um, and there's a voice in my head that tells me I should be that right. Like I, I, and then I tend to flare up into the rebel voice, right? The the rebel sinner who says, fuck that, I'm not doing this, you know? And then there's the colluder, right? That that good girl voice that tells me this is what I should be doing. The cult follower voice that says that leader is right and you should be in line, right? So it tries to coerce me, my own self tries to coerce me into practicing this behavior that I was taught or this belief system. So, and then we have our authentic self voice. We have the part of ourself that is our our actual self. Um, So this program is a great way, I believe, to look at those things, unpack those things and catch them in the moment and, and stop that moment. So it's a violence to intimacy practice group where you notice what you're doing. I might be violating myself. I might be violating my partner, right? If I get triggered into, I'm supposed to be in a proper woman's place, 
I have a rebel that wants to jump in and jump all over people. Well, that's me being violent towards that person who maybe did a very small thing, but it triggered this big reaction in me because I have this cult voice in my head telling me I should surrender. And I have this rebel in my head telling me, no way. (laughs) My authentic self is telling me, no, I'm not surrendering. And neither do I need to assault this person for (laughs) having stepped on one of my triggers. Right. So I love that. And it's a really powerful thing. And I would love to see if there's interest from people to participate in that kind of a work group with this focus on cult recovery specifically. So introducing that Mm. tool and I, that seven step process of mine sort of grew out of, well, a lot of things, but in part, some of the work I did with Hamish. Okay. That sounds interesting. I've not heard of that before, so um, I will. Um, I will have a look. Yeah, you can look that. it up. It's um, called Man Alive. Mm, um, yeah. The Alive Programs website that I gave you is uh, my website about the program, and I certainly okay. invite people to check that out. But also, you can look. You can Google Man Alive, um, lowercase M, lowercase A, Man Alive. Okay. Cool. Very good. Um, okay. Well, there's loads of us. Loads of. Uh, things for us to think about there um that's fascinating stuff um so just before we wrap up um uh, firstly i just want to say thank you very much cat for coming on today and talking to us um absolutely fascinating um you uh you you appeared at the international cultic studies association with um another Mm -hmm. speaker i forget her name now Um, judith Judith Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so how did you meet Judith? What, what's your connection? Yeah, with she's a good friend of mine. She is actually part of my chosen family. Um, and she, we met in like 2013 or something like that. And we, she's a therapist, as she said, and she works with um, kids who are being brainwashed against another parent. And so oh, she oh, does yes. work court ordered, you know, sessions with everybody and figures out what's actually going on and reports back to the, to the court system. So she's really got a lot of practice at noticing that brainwash state, noticing when somebody is manipulating and controlling and coercing essentially that situation um, on a parental level with kids. And so she just had a lot of, um, like sensitivity and awareness of the kinds of things that I was dealing with as a cult survivor. And this is somebody I had been out for 15 years at that point. Um, And she really, I, I don't think I've ever experienced from a mental health professional as much sensitivity and awareness of cultic issues. Mind you, I haven't gone to a cult specific therapist, but she, she really did a good job with that. So I was really excited for her to come on with me in the, in the presentation this couple of weeks ago, um, because I felt like she could give a, a great like container of the psychological processes that I was talking about in, um, at the same time. Yeah, and no, I think I think it was a good a good double act you you had there. It was really good. Um, great. Well, um, what's what's the near future hold then? So you have got lots of stuff you're really interested in. You're um, you're you're busy with with all these things. Yes, um, I am. Yeah. So the one thing I would love is to put out there that um, uh, one of the things that came up for me during the conference actually, I was talking to some people about um, my book and telling my story. And I was like, you know, I've always kind of wanted to do a book of interviews. Like after I kind of get my story out of the way, I would really like to, um, tell another, write another book that, um, 
I'm a researcher at heart, right? I'm a social scientist at heart. If I had had the opportunity to go to school, I'm sure I would have gotten degrees in those things. Um, because I love looking at the sort of social impacts and dynamics that are going on, especially in this recovery process. So not so much on people who are in it still, but people who are almost out of that transit zone or all the way out of that transit zone and in the world. How did you get yourself there? Right. So that second half of the journey through the transit zone and into the world, I would love to document that in, in, um, doing a bunch of interviews. And, and so I would be very interested if anyone is interested in being interviewed, telling their story about how they came out of that and what they did. Would you? Ah, let's do it. <laughs> of course. I'll put my hand up there. Uh, I'll be delighted. But yeah, um, if, if people want to uh, to talk to you, by all means, they can contact you directly. But um, yes. if, if you want to come through us, then we're happy to pass uh, pass your name on. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Thank you. Brilliant. So yeah, that's that's the last thing I would like right. to put out there. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. Well, um, brilliant. Um, I'm I'm more than happy to do that. Just let me know um, when, and I'm quite happy to bore you to death with my my story. Mm. Um, uh, Kat, thank you so much for joining us um, well, this evening you. for us. Um, bit different for your time. We're we're across the. It is. We're uh, noon here. Time zones. <laughs> I just wanted uh, to say thank you, thank so, you so much to both of you for the space holding and the questions and the fantastic interview. I really, I'm, I'm very excited to be able to happy to be able to bring these ideas and thoughts that I've been working with people various ways, but to bring it to the cult community, the ex cult community. That's, that's been a thing of mine for a long time. You're more than welcome. Thank you so awesome. much. Thank you so much. Thank you. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. <laughs>